Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is focused on one of the 12 steps of AA. John Glenn taught the steps to the church because Alpha Ministries contends that all people need recovery from something. And the 12 steps is the best program out there and mostly reflects the idea of discipleship and relationship Jesus had in mind. Enjoy and glean from the messages. All right, we're recording these, as you all know. Um, those of you who were here last week, we're recording, putting on DVD these sessions because this particular class is, is one-third, actually, of the curriculum we call Journey to Freedom. The Journey to Freedom curriculum we've been developing over the last five, six years. Um, includes the Alpha Series, which you've already had. Um, includes the 12 Steps of AA, 12 Steps of Recovery. And includes the Relational Empowerment Series, what we call the Relational Empowerment Series. It's a curriculum that's being used here locally in our halfway house over in Fort Pierce, the Safe Harbor Life Center. It's also used uh, in various other recovery programs around the country, uh, out in Texas and up north in uh, Yankee Land. So uh, we are trying to put it on DVD now so that it's easier to uh, send the DVD with someone teaching the series than it is to train a teacher. Okay. It's quicker. Um, as a matter of fact, the way I train teachers for both the Alpha Series, or the 12 Steps, or the Relational Empowerment Series, the training, the ministry training that I do is to have them facilitate uh, DVD sessions. What I mean by that is they plug a DVD in, they sit there and watch it with the folks they're seeking to reach, and then afterwards they shut it off and they process uh, what they've just heard. And the facilitator leads that process group. Now, good as I am, <laughs> in all humility, of course, right? As a teacher, you don't really learn anything when you listen to me, okay? I've got to be honest about this. The Holy Spirit's the one that teaches you. You all know that. Right? He's the one that clicks the light bulb on, so I'm just a vessel. He could use anyone. Uh, I've always been humbled by the story of Balaam and his jackass. If God can speak through a jackass, he can speak through me. Okay? But the point I'm, I'm making with this is after the initial, uh, what's called the fancy word for us, didactic ses uh, session, teaching session, uh, we have a process session led by Tom Mimbo, and he gives you an opportunity to ask questions and to put in your own words what you just heard me say. That's what a group facilitator would do when they show a DVD. They would say, no, what did you just hear? What did you get out of this, etc." That allows the student to put in their own words what it is that I am saying or what I'm teaching. When you put the concepts that I'm teaching in your own words, the light bulb comes on. That's where you learn. 
Okay, true learning occurs when you're able to put in your own language and your own words the same exact concept that I've been teaching. Not my words, your words. So it's a process that we rely entirely upon the Holy Spirit to do and one which he does effectively. So we've asked him to do that tonight. We are in lesson two of our 12 steps recovery session or section rather of the journey to freedom curriculum. And this step, the second step, the AA program, is simply we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now it's absolutely vital that we understand this step because all the other steps hinges on it. Just to give you a quick review from our last session, remember we talked about the very first step is that you are powerless. You recognize and admit that you are powerless over the AA program, it was over alcohol, and that your life had become unmanageable. Well, the way we adapt that to those of us who are not uh, in the AA program, if you're not in the AA program, I feel sorry for you, number one, but number two, I want you to understand that these steps have just as much application to you as they do to anybody in an AA program. And the way we bridged that gap last week in our last session was that Instead of putting alcohol in there, saying we were powerless, admit we were powerless over alcohol or any type of drug or substance, we put something else in there. A biblical term you learned in the Alpha series. We are powerless over the flesh. And what I mean by the flesh is our natural conditioning of self-centeredness and selfishness that leads us to all varieties of personal dysfunction. We're powerless over that. We have no authority over that. We can't control it. And as a result, our lives become unmanageable, out of control. Now, when we're willing to admit that we're powerless, then obviously the next step is we need new power. We need to find where the power is. If we are powerless, that means we can't do it. We can't get the job done. We can't fix ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We're going to need the power to actually affect change in our lives. Now, this is where step two came, comes in. Step two says sim simply, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Obviously, it's got to be a power greater than ourselves because we ourselves couldn't change. We ourselves couldn't change ourselves. We couldn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, turn over a new leaf, behave ourselves, make ourselves different. So we need a power outside of ourselves. The homework assignment I want to refer to you all, and by the way, I hope that you all by now have purchased or begged, borrowed, or stolen, God forbid, a big book. The AA Big Book, it's called. It's the manual for the AA program, written back in the 30s. If you haven't gotten one, we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do when I finally get a secretary who's working for me, Mary. Uh, we'll see who, <laughs> what we can do to get you some here. But uh, we, the Big Book has a chapter that I want to assign to you. I believe it's chapter 4, is it not, Tom? Chapter 4, entitled, We agnostics. I hope you know what the word agnostic means. It comes from a Greek word, 
agnosis, which almost sounds like agnostic, doesn't it? Agnosis, as a matter of fact, the English word agnostic is just a transliteration of that Greek word. It means one who doesn't know. That's what an agnostic is. I don't know. And specifically as it refers here, I want you to read chapter 4, the chapter on we agnostics, because it is the best description of the second step and the need for the second step that I've ever seen. The second step says again, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. How do you do that? Especially if you're not sure there is a greater power. If you're not convinced, as some who call themselves atheists are, that there is a God, or some who are agnostics and they just don't know. If you're not convinced that there's a, a power, how can you come to believe that a power greater than yourself would restore you to sanity? Well, in this chapter, chapter four, he goes through a whole series of arguments and, and reasonings that illustrate the fact that we agnostics, we who don't know whether there's a God or not, there's a higher power or not, can actually come to faith, not in the religious sense of the word. So I'm not going to go through all that the big book says. I was tempted just to uh, do that as our lesson here. But you have the big book. You can read chapter 4. I'm going to entrust that to you. And for the sake of time, I want to get to another issue, assuming, across the board here, that all of you here in this class, and those of you watching the DVD, all of you have come to believe at one point in time or another in your life that there is a higher power and that he is God. Now, you may not call him God, you may call him something else, but there is a higher power. You can use different terms and the terms aren't really important because the main principle of chapter four of the AA program is not your understanding necessarily of that higher power, but your recognition that there is a higher power that there is power outside of yourself, a power greater than yourself, that could, in fact, restore you to sanity. Now, before we get into the particular section I want to deal with tonight, let's just take a minute, since we're here, to note what that higher power is going to do. He's going to restore you, who are powerless, and you, whose life has become unmanageable, is unraveling in front of your very eyes, falling apart at the seams, is going to restore you to sanity. Now think about that a moment. If you're being restored to sanity, where were you? Hmm? Insane, right? The AA definition of insanity I like, it's just a common sense definition. It's doing the same things over and over again, expecting each time a different result, a different outcome. That's insanity. That's insane. It can restore you to sanity, get you out of the fog, so to speak, get you out of your la-la land, out of your fantasy world, in which you have a tendency to deny or distort reality, which is the basic premise for all neurosis, or even have broken with reality, which is the 
foundation of psychosis, very serious mental disorders. So this higher power that we're talking about, this power greater than yourself that we come to believe in, specifically we're believing in this power greater than ourselves for a purpose. And that purpose is to restore us to sanity. Now again, I'm going to assume that all of you have at one point in time in your life believed in a power greater than yourself. Therefore, you believe there is a God. There is a God who can in fact and will and has and does restore you to sanity, put your life back together. I'm going to assume that you've done step two. Step two is real easy. Okay, I frequently do it in the, in the uh, orientation classes that I teach at Safe Harbor Life Center with the guys who've just been there in the program less than a month. I'll frequently do step two with it in this way. And I'll do it with you all so you can all say, I did step two tonight, okay? You all want to do step two tonight? Yeah, yeah, everybody raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, okay. We're going to do step two. Have you tried over and over again, I'll be honest with me, have you tried over and over again without any success to quit doing something that you know that you need to quit doing? Have you tried to quit sin? Have you tried to quit smoking? Have you tried to quit drinking? Have you tried to quit cussing? Have you tried to quit yelling so much? Have you tried to quit complaining? To quit whining? Have you tried over and over and over again to quit something? And failed. Just couldn't make it. If you admit that, you've done step one. Okay, we've done step one. Now we're going to do step two. Do you want somebody outside of yourself, a power greater than you, to help you quit? Do you want them to do for you what you can't do for yourself? Do you want a power greater than you to restore you to sanity? Everybody nod their head yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations, you've done step two. Okay, it's really that simple. See, step one is, you, is probably more difficult because you finally admit you can't do it. You give up. Say, I'm done. I quit. I can't do it. I've tried, tried, tried to turn over this new leaf, and I just can't do it. Step two is came to believe that a power greater than you can do it could restore you to sanity. Now, assuming that you've done step two, you have, in fact, exercised faith. That's what came to believe means. You came to believe, you exercised faith. Whereas before, your faith was in yourself. Okay, I'm going to quit this time. This time, it's going to be different. This time, I'm really going to stay on that diet. This time... I'm really going to change, I promise. Your faith was in yourself. Now in step two, your faith is not in yourself anymore. Your faith is outside of yourself in a power greater than you. We call that power God. Now your faith 
is towards God. That's really step two. Step two is just exercising a faith. But what kind of faith is this? This is what I want to really spend our time on tonight in this step. I want to contrast this kind of faith that you're exercising in step two. In a genuine, genuine exercise of faith in step two, I want to contrast that genuine faith, step two faith, with what I call toxic faith, which is a different kind of faith, very similar to the faith in yourself that we were talking about before you did step one. See, when you trusted yourself, you were exercising a faith that you developed naturally, a toxic faith. Now in step two, you're exercising an authentic faith. Well, what makes the difference between toxic faith and authentic faith? And that's what, I want you to see this difference because recovery in every sense of the word, whether it's recovery from drugs and alcohol, or recovery from other variety forms of addictions, in every sense of the word, recovery hinges on authentic faith. As I shared with you in our last session, the AA program, the reason I like the AA program, the big book, as presented in the big book, is because it is the original American faith-based program. Now, when I use the term faith-based, you might uh, think, well, that term's fairly new. It just originated back in uh, the first part of this century, back in 2000, uh, with George Bush's faith-based initiative. Now, faith-based has been around a long time. It means the program, the faith-based program of recovery of AA means it is a program of recovery that is contingent upon the exercise of authentic faith. If you cannot exercise faith in that power greater than yourself, as we've illustrated here in step two, then you're not in a faith-based program, you're in what I would refer to as a fear-based program, one sort or another, which ultimately fails. So it's a faith-based program, but what kind of faith are we exercising? So I want to contrast with you tonight toxic faith versus authentic faith. What makes the difference between these two? Now I'm going to get just a fuzz philosophical with you tonight. I want to keep it as practical as I can because this is such a vital, really a, a vital uh, concept for our recovery. But it's, it's going to have to be a little bit philosophical just to give you a description of the difference. It starts first of all with the origin. The difference between toxic and authentic faith has to do, first of all, with where it comes from. Authentic faith always originates from within the individual. Now, theoretically you can say, theologically you can say, as we studied in the Alpha series, that faith is a gift, actually, of God, so technically Theologically, you could say it originates with God, but it, it's given to the individual. But from our experience as individuals, it comes from within us, in ourselves. God-given as it may be, it still 
comes from within us in our experience. As a natural result or response to the love, forgiveness, and grace of God. That's where faith comes from. It originates within us. So we, expressing authentic faith, want to believe. As contrasted with toxic faith, which comes from outside the individual. These are the two operative terms here I want you to see with regards to the origin of faith. What do I mean it comes from outside the individual? What I'm talking about are those folks who are coerced or made to believe in something. You see, in all religious systems, generally you're born into it. Young children raised up in a religious system of any sort, they don't really have a choice. They're made to go to church. They're made to be involved in that religious system of their parents. They don't really have a choice. So they develop naturally a faith from outside themselves that is fostered in them by their parents or caretakers. Depending on the type of faith, depending on the type of religious system, it can be very coercive. As a matter of fact, toxic faith and the coercion of toxic faith is one of the strongest weapons that can be used to manipulate people. Threatening them with the wrath of God. Not just the wrath of God momentarily, the wrath of God eternally. Let me give you an example. And there are many, all three of the major religious systems, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all three of the re major religious systems of the world today, which comprises the vast majority of the world population, all three have elements of toxic faith. Now, in the religious system of Islam, for instance, who you all know and have been acutely aware since 9-11 of the toxic faith of the radical jihadists as those terrorists infiltrated the airplanes, hijacked the airplanes, flew them in the, raid, in the trade center and, and into the Pentagon, you can see the results of that toxic faith. Did they have faith? Oh yeah, they were exercising a strong faith. Was it toxic? Oh yeah, it was detrimental and destructive. It was a toxic faith. And we can all say, oh well, look at that. That's an example of toxic faith in Islam. And it is. The radical religious extremists of the Islamic faith present a worldwide danger because of their toxic faith. But it's not only Islam that has toxic faith. Judaism historically has had tremendous amounts of toxic faith in it, as illustrated primarily in the biblical days of Jesus' ministry and his war and his fight with the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and Pharisees. Were their faith, was there, did they have faith? Oh yeah, they had faith. As a matter of fact, 
They crucified, sought the crucifixion and death of Christ because of their toxic faith. They thought they were doing God a favor to kill Jesus. And Jesus warned his disciples about that. He said, don't think they're, they're going to stop with me. If they've done this to me, they're going to do it to you. They're going to think, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. They're going to put you to death thinking they're doing God a favor. Why? Because they have a toxic faith that is imposed on them from without. You see, part of the religious persecution complex here is the fact that coercion or forcing a person to do or say or be whatever you want them to is a natural byproduct of a toxic faith system. Now, what about Christianity? Well, historically, the first and greatest worldwide exhibition of toxic faith in Christianity, which, by the way, was not a religion to start with. Did you know that? Now, think of it. Imagine this. You're a first-century Christian before they ever had churches, before Constantine in the third century built the first church or hired the clergy to watch it. You're a Christian. You're a believer. And your next-door neighbor is a typical garden-variety Roman pagan. He's got his religion. He worships a variety of Roman gods. He's got a variety of temples to the gods to go to and a variety of ceremonies to perform within those temples. And so you're carrying on a conversation over the back fence with your neighbor, and he says, oh, what religion are you? Well, I'm not really, I don't really have a religion. I'm, I kind of follow this guy named Jesus who, you know, they crucified and he rose again. He said, well, really, what, what temple do you go to? Well, we don't really have a temple. No? Well, what kind of priest do you have? Well, we really don't have any priests. Really? What kind of ceremonies and sacrifices do you do to the gods? Well, we don't do any sacrifices. You see, this guy Jesus, he was the sacrifice. He is the ultimate high priest. That Roman neighbor of yours, who was highly religious, is going to call you what the Romans called the early Christians. They didn't call them Christians. What they called the early Christians were atheists. You don't have a God. At least not one that has a temple, not one that has priests, not one that has a religious service that you can get involved in. You don't have a God. You must be an atheist. You see, the early Christianity was not a religion, but later in the third century it became a religion as Constantine, the Roman emperor, gave it recognition for the spiritual power he saw when he tried to persecute Christians and they multiplied. He said, hmm, instead of persecuting them, let me get a hold of their power. And so he made a trade-off with them. He said, I'm going to give you the, the temporal, political, military power of Rome 
and you give me the spiritual power, okay? And there was a handful of folks that made that deal with him. And he started building church buildings. As soon as Constantine turned Christianity into a religion rather than a relationship with God, as it originally started out to be, through his son, Jesus, toxic faith entered. And the very first thing they did, under the banner of the cross, was called the Crusades. And they marched through the Holy Land, went through villages, and insisted that those inhabitants who were predominantly Arabic, Islamists, convert to Christianity, whether they were a Jew or they were Islamic, they had to convert to Christianity or they killed them. See, the first terrorist attack, historically, was done by Christianity under the banner of the cross led by forces of Constantine. Toxic faith. Now, that coercion as represented by you either believe what I believe or I'm going to kill you is where toxic faith comes from. It comes from outside the individual. Now, it's not always as dramatic as that, as those examples we've been using, in Christianity especially, and I'm going to stick with the Christian religion here for a moment because I'm more concerned about that at this point. It doesn't always come as dramatic as the Crusades. When a mother of four children decides with her toxic faith that if her children live beyond the age of accountability, i.e. 12 years old, in which they are responsible personally and individually before God, that there is an outside chance, at least a 50-50 chance, that they may reject God and go to hell when they die. Motivated by fear of her children going to hell, combined with some other serious mental disorders, when a Christian mama drowns her babies in the bathtub. We look at that and say, why did she do that? Toxic faith. See, toxic faith accounts for all forms of dysfunction. Now, where it fits in our study of the 12 steps of recovery is step two is a step of faith. You came to believe. You exercised faith in a power greater than yourself to restore you to sanity. We need to be sure that that faith is authentic, not toxic. So, with regards to the origin, the main difference here is that authentic faith will be your choice. It'll rise from within you. A toxic faith 
won't be your choice. It'll be the result of coercion or persuasion of some sort. Somebody is holding a gun to your head, forcing you to believe something. But that's not the only way we see the difference. The second main difference between the two types of faith concerns the focus. What is that faith focused on? What is the focus of your faith? An authentic faith, the focus is on what I call divine, having to do with God, provisions. Just to simplify it, it means what God is doing for you. What's God doing for you? How is God working in your life? How is this greater power, this higher power, actually restoring you to sanity? The focus is always on what God is doing. Now contrast that to toxic faith. The exercise of toxic faith changes the focus altogether. You're no longer looking at what God is doing, has done, or will do. In toxic faith, you are looking at yourself in self-effort. What are you doing? What have you been doing? What should you be doing? What could you do if you would do? Focus is always on yourself. Well, I need to do this, or I need to do that, or I better start doing this, or I better start doing that. You're consumed with what you're going to do. And you run around asking, what shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? You're not even thinking about what God is doing. You see the shift in focus from what God is doing, what he's providing for you, which we're going to see later in our study, is everything. Because recovery really means what God is doing for you that you could never do for yourself. When you, when you shift the focus away from what God is doing, has done and will do, to what you got to do, you just move from authentic faith to toxic faith. And it'll take its toll. The final contrast that I want to show you tonight has to do with the expression of our faith. Not just the origin, where it comes from, not just the focus, what it's concentrated on, but finally, the expression. How is your faith expressed? How does it show up in your life, in your relationships? Authentic faith is always consistently expressed by love, tolerance, acceptance, of others. Always. You love them, you're compassionate, you forgive them, you're accepting of them, you tolerate them. You live and let live. 
Authentic faith will always be manifested in a compassion towards others. Always. You can identify yourself with it. You're not judgmental and critical, harsh. Toxic faith, on the other hand, is always concerned with manipulation, seeking to change, to manipulate, to redirect others. It's always seeking power and control with regards to others. It's always asking the question, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? What can I do to change them? How can I fix them? It's never accepting or tolerating, forgiving, or having compassion. It's always judgmental, critical, seeking manipulation, power, and control in relationships with other people. Toxic faith is real easy to spot, especially in those who are, quote, self-righteous. You all know about those folks, those self-righteous hypocrites. Anybody know somebody besides yourself like that? Of course you do. You all know how they're always criticizing others. They're always irritated by somebody. They're always seeking to change, to manipulate, to control. And generally speaking, they're very frustrated because of that. Always mad, upset. Why? Because deep down inside they have a toxic faith, not an authentic faith. Now the importance of this, and I don't have time to, tonight to get into all the details of this because our time is about gone, but the importance of understanding of toxic faith as, regard, as it regards step two in the recovery program is when it says we came to believe, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, the exercise of faith in that step of necessity must be an authentic faith. It's dangerous, however, because frequently what happens in recovery, in the everyday experience of this, is that authentic faith, which may have been present initially, be deteriorates into a toxic faith as the individual quits or leaves off having a spiritual experience, which we're going to talk about next week, in that spiritual awakening that AA refers to as being absolutely essential to recovery. They leave off the spirituality of their experience and enter into what I refer to as religiosity. In short, they quit being spiritual, which is necessary for recovery. There is no possibility for recovery without a spiritual awakening, none whatsoever. They leave off being spiritual and they become religious. You see, there's a huge difference between spirituality and religiosity a huge difference. 
what we're learning in these steps is how we're going to recover in spirituality, not how we're going to be religious in nature. The way that steps are written, the way the big book is written, has that in mind. As, as a matter of fact, it is specifically non-religious. And let me add to your, you'll pick it up in the footnotes if you do your homework assignment and read chapter four in the big book, entitled We Agnostics. There's a couple footnotes in there that will refer you to Appendix 2, Roman numeral 2, in the, at the end of the big book. I highly recommend that you read that, Appendix 2. I'm going to recommend it so much I'll probably read it to you next week. But the point is that what they are stressing is that we recognize that recovery requires true spirituality. But the greatest enemy to true spirituality is religiosity. As soon as you become relig religious, spirituality goes right out the window. And it's easy to do. I'm going to illustrate that to you with a little illustration I use in all my training classes, which is just totally ridiculous, but it ties into recovery, and it's so, such an absurd illustration, you'll never forget it. <laughs> okay. Let's suppose, just for the sake of this illustration, that I am a uh, suffering from drug addiction, I'm a crack addict. And I'm having a terrible time with this, and I'm trying to quit, and I can't quit, and I'm just going on and on. Finally, I realize, step one, that I'm powerless. I can't do it. I've tried and tried, and I can't get out of it. I can't get away from it. And I admit that. I'm powerless, and my life is unmanageable because of it. And it happens to be Friday night, 12 o'clock, when I make that first step, and I'm getting ready for bed, go into my closet, take off my clothes, get down to my buffalo briefs, and all of a sudden, just this overwhelming compulsion comes on me. I stand on my head in my buffalo briefs, in my closet, privately in my own home, and I speak in tongues. And I have a religious experience. And from that moment on, I don't even want to smoke another rock. I don't even want to do any drugs at all. I've been delivered. Now, you might question my spiritual experience. You might say, I don't know that that really happened. And that's fine, you can, but it's my experience. To me, it happened. And it worked for me. I had a spiritual awakening. A week goes by and it's real and there's no problem with it. I have no desire for drugs. My whole life changes. I've had this spiritual awakening, this spiritual experience. I exercised genuinely authentic faith. But in that following week, I get to thinking, you know, I know a lot of my buddies we were crack addicts, and they could probably really enjoy the same experience I had. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call them all up, and I'm going to tell them my story. And this next Friday night, I'm going to invite them over to my house at exactly 12 midnight, and I'm going to have them get in that closet one at a time, strip down to their buffalo briefs, stand on their head, and speak in tongues, and they too can be delivered. Now, what have I just done? I've taken my spiritual experience that worked for me, 
And I've made a rule. I've legalized it. I've made a system of orthodoxy that they had to be doing it just like I did it at exactly the same time in exactly the same way. I've ritualized it. I just moved from spirituality to religiosity. And you know how I got them to my house? I forced them. I said, you're going to die a crack addict unless you come to my house next Friday night. And I scared them into coming to my house. Now, what kind of faith did I produce in them? If they showed up and exercised any faith at all, it was a toxic faith. So should it be any surprise it didn't work for them? No. Not just because that's such a ridiculous example, but because of the toxic faith that I generated in them. So you can't recover with toxic faith. All you can do is get religious and be obnoxious with toxic faith. You can't recover. Recovery takes authentic faith. Step two is a step of authentic faith. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We're going to quit here for tonight, and we'll pick up with step three next week. Appreciate you all being here. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 